Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Let's talk entertainment for just a bit. One of Vermont's true treasures of culture and entertainment is the Vermont Symphony Orchestra. If you've never seen them in person, I really urge you to check them out. Uh, I've seen a few performances of the VSO, just not for a number of years. And so um, it's really special for me. I'm honored to have Matt LaRocca join us this morning to discuss some interesting performances that are coming up pretty soon. Matt, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Thanks for having me, Brad. Well, um, I uh, I, I want to note that your bio says you are a composer, performer, and educator. You are just as likely to see playing with a band in a dive bar as conducting an orchestra. I think it's a fascinating um, contrast. Um, he's on the composition uh, of the uh, composition and theory faculty, I should say, of the at, at UVM, and is the executive director of Music Comp, an organization that teaches composition to students throughout the country by pairing them with professional composers. As mentors, so we need to talk about that in, in just a minute. But um, uh, Matt is committed to new music and innovation. Loves bringing classical music to new audiences and new spaces through his work as the curator of the VSO's Jukebox Concert Series. Um, Matt, can you can you tell us to give us an overview about the Jukebox Series, um, uh, its artistic goals, and 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 uh, what you what you love most about it? Absolutely. Um, so Jukebox was at we started with the Vermont Symphony about eight years ago, almost now, and it's a way for us to to play a little outside of the box, outside of the norm and showcase a lot of the great musicians and great music that we have, but in a smaller, more intimate setting. And so for years, we used to have our home in Arch Riot, which was a bar and warehouse down in the south end of Burlington, um, which is now since closed, but we still, we, we go to places that you don't often see a string quartet play. We, we play music from every type of genre and style like you know you'll see Bach and on the program and then right after it will be the talking heads and <laughs> it all sort of like comes it comes together and it's and it's fun it's it's relaxed it's 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 just nice to be a part of it everyone feels like we're all in the room together hanging out and we're listening to killer music yeah um so where can interested folks see and hear uh, the Jukebox series? So the Jukebox, our concerts coming up are in Zen Barn in Waterbury and then down in the Paramount Theater in Rutland. But at the Paramount, we'll have all of the audience and ourselves on the stage. So no one will actually be sitting in the chairs where the audience usually sits. Instead, we'll do we'll ring the audience around us as we all are on the stage together. 
Wow. Now that's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm assuming uh, you've got space on the stage to do that. If you get a lot of people show up. Yep. Paramount's a pretty big stage, so we can still sit, you know, a hundred plus on it and have room for, in, in this instance, which is going to be uh, violin and cello pre- played by Brooke Quiggins and John Dunlop, plus our two percussionists, Tom Toner and Nick Canazaro, with all sorts of percussion goodies. Percussion goodies. I love that. Co- I love the concept. Um, um, so, uh, at the Zen Barn, um, you've got, uh, I mean, I know that you, you like to focus on creativity. Uh, at the Zen Barn, given that it's a dispensary, things can get really creative. Um, um, how, how does it work? How do you, how do you, um, meld, uh, uh, a, a, a level of creativity um, with an orchestra. I mean, you mentioned having having folks around. Is it the same thing going to happen at Zen Barn? Uh, so Zen Barn, actually, we won't be in the dispensary. We'll be in the the restaurant bar. I the see. Down on Gupta Road, yeah. Um, so a li- little different than in the dispensary. Although, don't want to rule that one out either. <laughs> That's great, man. Um, uh, and um, let's talk about uh, you know what the what the music selections are going to be. I see you have um, an opening and a closing from Glassworks. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know anything about that. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Uh, Philip Glass is one of the one of the greatest living composers that we have, and writes beautiful music. He's pr- he's probably most famous for his avant garde opera Einstein on the Beach. Um, but in addition to that, he has this just shockingly gorgeous array of pieces and music. And the opening and closing are these are it's a great, wonderful way to bookmark a concert because each piece is about three minutes of peaceful reflection and perfection. They're they're beautiful and tender and and almost meditative with how they with how they are. So that and that will be played by. Tom and Nick playing one marimba together, so four hands on the one marimba, and then John and Brooke playing violin and cello. Wow! Uh, so something that is has a certain level of uh, what I, what I think is like a little delicacy to it actually yep. has this this percussion level to it also. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, that's the beauty of the percussions. They can smack the heck out of something and make it loud and raucous, but then also. They can be pretty gentle and, and delicate as well. Huh. Um, uh, okay. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's cool. You know, when I think of that, when I think of percussion, I'm thinking of Carl Palmer going crazy. Um, and, and it's, uh, and it's not quite that, is it? It's, it's, um, it's soft and, and, um, and mixes very well with, with, uh, string music. Right. Although we do have a little bit of that going crazy, um, there's a there's a play, there's a piece on the program where Tom and John, uh, uh, Tom and Nick, I'm sorry, both play the cajon, the the box drum that you sit on. That's just this, you know, they're just rocking out, and and it's it's a killer, killer ride. So hmm. we go both ways with the percussion. Yeah. Now is that what you're talking about there? Is that the hammers piece? No, that's called it's called slide rule. Oh, okay. 
Um, you know, I saw a slide rule and I'm thinking of uh, pedal steel for some reason, but that's probably not. <laughs> um, uh, uh, is there, um, a, uh, uh, well, let, I'll tell you what. Let's talk about uh, a little, uh, a little bit more of the, of the uh, program that's uh, that, that you're going to be bringing to Zen Barn. Um, sure. ha- hammers. Um, uh, that sounds like percussion to me, but because a hammer itself is actually, uh, I suppose, a percussion piece. Um, uh, how do? How? What, what's 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 special about this piece? Yeah. So so with all of all of the pieces, we we mix and match the players. So there's there's you know there's some solos there's some duets and 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 I like doing this because it's sort of like we keep everybody on their toes and and it's really and it's really flowing so so hammers is a duet for one of our percussionists and the violin so Brooke and Nick Brooke is playing violin and then Nick plays a toy piano and a mason jar a so toy piano. Sure. And a mason yeah. jar. Yeah, and a mason jar. Absolutely. Wow, and, boy, uh, boy, you, uh, boy, you talk about creativity. You are really, really, uh, putting it out there. Um, because, you know, uh, the, to my way of thinking, you know, uh, I guess I mentioned to you earlier when we talked on the phone that, uh, um, you know, my, uh, experience with most, uh, symphonic music, um, is stuff like Rostropovich at, um, at the National Symphony at the Kennedy Center. Mm-hmm. Um, now that is, um, uh, it, it's, you know, you go in there, you get what you expect to get, uh, which is you sit there in the audience and the music plays and then you get up and go home. Uh, this is, um, not only, uh, al- almost, um, uh, more, uh, it's, it's right next door to audience participation, I guess is what it sounds like. Absolutely. There's a there's with with all the jukebox concerts, it's sort of designed to. So so I came from a classical background and from a rock background, and one of the things that I, in my in any classical concert I want to do, is inhabit a little bit of that, that blend between the audience and the and the musicians if I'm playing with a band, right? Yeah. There's a lot more back and forth. There's a lot more feeling like, oh, they're part of it too, instead of, hey, we're just giving this music to you. It's, it's really like, come share with what we're doing. You're part of us too. And and there is a little bit more, or a lot more, I think, than uh, of that ability for the audience to interact, to be part of the show as well. Ah. Um, boy, this is, this is, um, interesting stuff. Um, and it really opens the door to a whole new, uh, view of classical music, um, because of the way that it is performed, even though it's not really a full orchestra, right? You're talking about uh, a a quartet and two percussionists, so six people. Uh, actually even, uh, not even the full quartet. So it's all just four people. Because we have just the violin and viola from the string quartet, and then the two percussionists, ah, so it's a much more pared down and stripped down uh, than the full orchestra, which is also really nice. Because when there's when when you're that close with the performers and the people, and there's not that many of them, like everyone knows, like, the the audience knows who everyone is on stage, and there and there and there's a more intimate connection that we have. Wow. Um, it's just such a, such a cool thing. Um, and as, uh, as, uh, you know, a kind of a, 
uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a long way from being any kind of aficionado of, of, of classical music, but it's, it's kind of like art. I don't know it, but I, but I know what I like. Um, Matt, I wanted to get back, uh, just to a little bit about the rest of the Zen Barn program. Um, uh, I see, uh, something called a duo for violin and cello movement, um, by Jesse Montgomery. Um, how, um, uh, uh, it's a duo, so these are um, uh, two string musicians playing off each other. Um, t- can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. So, so Jesse Montgomery is one of the most uh, prolific and and sort of like she's top of the charts in classical uh, composition these days, just killing it with everything she puts out. And she's a violinist and. She wrote a duet for herself and another cellist friend. And it's very, it's very much in the, the new music, classical music tradition. But I, I love it, especially when John and Brooke play it, because John and Brooke are, they've been playing together for years. And, and the back and forth that you see with two musicians who know each other, not on just a musical level, but a deep friendship level is one of the greatest things to be able to witness. So that ability to push and pull and play off of one another is, is really highlighted in, in this duet. Hmm. Um, one of the other um, uh, selections for this program is called Manta Ray Dance. Uh, that's that's pretty interesting in and of itself. Um, you can see how what, what graceful um, uh, uh, fish uh, these uh, creatures are. Um, how, is, is do we can we uh, close our eyes in this selection and and sort of picture a manta ray uh, f- going through the water um, with this music? You can, and and it's. And it's a, and this is a really interesting piece because it's for the rick, which is a traditional Arabic tambourine, and and it feels really, it feels like a dance, like watching that motion of swimming that is so fluid, and and so um, just so movement based with what it is, and 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 Nick does a fantastic job playing this. Hmm. And also, one of the things I love about percussionists is they, you know, like, I don't know. So so I play the viola. Um, I know how to make a viola sound great. You put a tambourine in my hand, I feel like, you know, I'm just sitting. I'm like, ching, ching. You know, you make yeah. those little tambourine noises. You put a tambourine in Nick's hand, and holy smokes, is it the most amazing thing you've ever heard. The ability to get so much out of it is it's it's just cool to watch. It's amazing. I'll bet. I'll bet. So you must be tempted to say, "Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man." Oh, left and right, and then Nick will roll his eyes at me, and I'll be like, "You love it," and Nick will be like, "Yeah, I did love it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, man, that just sounds so good. Um, so uh, the Zen Barn um, feature is going to be February 11th, right? Um, yep. At uh, at the Zen Barn on Route 100, or just off Route 100 in Waterbury on Guptill Road. Yep, and then we'll be in the Paramount Theater on the 10th on Saturday evening. Okay. Um, there's lots of other great things, too. There's just one more plug for, again, thinking about how percussionists are able to do such amazing things. Um, the other really interesting one is for flower pots and cello. And 
our principal percussionist plays a bunch of flower pots that he picked up from Home Depot. And it's in a duet with our principal cellist. Wow. Now that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, you, you, you love to, uh, to work with, uh, uh, creative concepts to advance, uh, um, um, uh, to advance music in, in general. You know, uh, when you mentioned the flower pots, I'm reminded of any time, uh, you're going into, um, a major league ballpark. Um, you get these guys sitting outside playing plastic buckets. Yeah, exactly. And they, some of them, not all of them, some of them are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's great. Yeah, boy, I, I wonder. I wonder if there's something you can do with that. Oh, I love that idea. I'm, huh. I'm officially stealing it. Okay. All right. That sounds pretty good. Uh, uh, by the way, if you have a question uh, for Matt uh, about music, uh, about the VSO, please give us a call. Um, we are at 802-244-1777. That's 244-1777 to ask a question of Matt LaRocca of the VSO. Um, Matt, um, uh, just getting to uh, – what influences you? Um, you have a, a real lot going on with music education. In fact, as I was going through your bio, I was thinking, how is he even going to have time to talk with us? Um, uh, I'm, I, and, of course, I'm reminded of a music teacher when I was in seventh grade who had a real issue getting the attention of students. Uh, I'm assuming that the students at your level are a little more engaged. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you find, uh, what, what is, to get, to be a student that is really launching into hopefully a career in music at some level, um, how do those kids separate out from the rest of their peers? Yeah. And so we, we talk about this a lot at UVM where we have a really strong and robust music department and, I work with a lot of seniors who are on that what next stage. And and one of the things that I believe that is the most helpful they can do is understand how to be creative in in both performance and creation and the business side of music. So how do you actually pay the bills and be a giggy musician? And, and there's a million ways to do it, and they're all slightly different. And so we really try to teach that entrepreneurship, that creativity as, as we're going through so that when they get out, they don't have just one path and one path only option that works for everybody, but they can try to see, like, see what they can do in music and how they can be who they are while still trying to build a career out of it and a livelihood. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you're right. I mean, in, as, as I, I suppose, uh, people who are, uh, competing for an opening on a, a major symphony orchestra, um, not everybody's going to make it. Um, no. and, and so, so can you describe the difficulty there that, that in, in getting to that, to that point? Absolutely. I mean, and, and for, the, and even for the VSO, so we're a regional orchestra. We draw our players from Vermont, but also Boston and New York and New Orleans. And there's a lot of people from all across the, the Northern Hemisphere that 
come and are, are contracted players. And every time you see an opening at a major symphony orchestra, the competition just to even get your foot in the door is off the charts. Ugh. Yeah, there's so many people vying for the same job, and so many people who play perfectly. And so the the ability to make that jump and make that step is, it just gets harder and harder to be frank. And it's but not undoable. And people get these jobs all the time. But the every year there's sort of fewer of them. And you have to work harder to be, you know, to be able to land one of those. Right, right. I'm, I, I'm sure. Uh, hard work, um, and yet there are some people who might play a piece perfectly and still not, still not land it. Right. Right. But yeah. the thing is, then there's all these other ways which you can still have an impact as a musician. Do what you want to do and build a career and livelihood out of it. Right. So I think we, we're starting to see much more flexibility with the pathways. We just we just have a short time uh, left, um, uh, Matt. But I did want to ask you, since you have this uh, pretty broad um, appreciation and participation in the music scene, what was it that drew you in to classical? Um, I, I know uh, I became interested in classical. Really, I got locked in on it because of the um, uh, Keith Emerson's Piano Concerto Number no. One in the Works Volume One album, which was a whole lot more than just classical music. Yeah, and so so for me, it was. I actually have a very distinct memory of when I I, I was like, oh, this could be great. Because I grew up playing in orchestras and concert bands and and then also rock bands. But then when I grew up in New Jersey and the New Jersey Youth Symphony plays in Carnegie Hall every couple of years. And so we went into Carnegie Hall as like a 17-year-old and we played Stravinsky's uh, Firebird Suite, which is half classical music, half rock and roll the way I think about it. Yeah. And that was the moment where I really, I, I really felt the connection. Uh, to this whole world of music and watching the people uh, around me and the experience that we all got from performing together to the audience was that was my my watershed moment. Wow. Okay. Well, that's it's great that you that you remember it so clearly. Um, Matt uh, Matt LaRocca of the uh, Vermont Symphony Orchestra and the Jukebox Series coming to Zen Barn and the Paramount Theater next month. Uh, we appreciate your time very much. Um, we soon will have um, uh, Rabbi uh, Amita Jarman to speak with us uh, about what's happening uh, in. Israel and their conflict with Hamas. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it very much. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Brad Wright. The attitudes among Vermont's Jewish communities about the Israel-Hamas conflict may not be what many non-Jews think. Uh, there's no question that the October 7 mass murder of 1,200 innocent people, and in some cases the sexual mutilation of victims, is just utterly, utterly horrifying. Um, but Israel's method of retaliation, relentless bombing of Gaza, street-to-street -street urban combat temporarily squeezing supplies has resulted uh, in the deaths of thousands, too, 
including many children, and with some groups accusing Israel and the United States as its ally of genocide, although personally I think that's a, a misnomer. Uh, joining us to discuss what Vermont's Jewish communities are thinking and feeling about this is Rabbi Amita Jarman, the rabbi for the Brattleboro Area Jewish Community. She grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, spent a year in Israel after high school, fell in love with the land and the people, returning several years later to become an Israeli citizen, studying physical therapy at Tel Aviv University. Um, she worked for over a decade as a physical therapist in Philadelphia and, and Western Massachusetts before attending the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and becoming a full-time congregational rabbi in coastal Maine. She is now in, in the Brattleboro community. And so, uh, Rabbi uh, Amita, thank you so much for joining us. A special thanks, really, because this is all very emotional and difficult um, to talk about objectively when we when we get to the granular level so so thank you for joining us you're welcome brad um thank you for inviting me and i just want to be sure you can hear me because i'm using speakerphone and not an earphone is, okay is the sound okay you sound fine you sound good um so uh i just want to get started a little bit um with your background um to get started Reconstructionist Judaism is defined as a movement based on the concepts developed by Rabbi Mordecai Kaplan that views Judaism as a progressively evolving civilization rather than just a religion. Uh, Reconstructionist Judaism is recognized by many scholars as one of the five major streams of Judaism in America alongside Orthodox, conservative, reform, and humanistic. And is this your understanding? Yes. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a major stream because we're relatively small, but um, Mordecai, Mordecai Kaplan's ideas have, have affected all the streams. Uh, I think that probably, you know, reform and conservative rabbis, for sure, if not Orthodox, would agree that it's an evolving civilization. You know, Judaism Judaism is, most people would, a lot of people in, in Vermont that I've encountered, a lot of Jews have said, oh, I'm a cultural Jew. I'm not a religious Jew. And uh, to me, the synagogue or the, the Jewish community center would maybe be a better name is for any kind of Jew, whether they're see themselves as religious or cultural or whatever. But we're all, the, the Mordecai Kaplan said being a Jew is, there's the three Bs of being a Jew. There's belonging, behaving, and believing. And number one is belonging, that you, you are part of the Jewish people and that you're connected with Jewish history and Jewish destiny. And then behaving is both ritual and ethical behaviors, and then believing you can believe almost anything that you want to believe. It's like there's no legislated faith. So, um, yeah, and I just want to say that I am, um, I was trained as a Reconstructionist rabbi, and I still identify, uh, and we're having, I'm about to go to the 50th, uh, the 50th uh, convention, like the 50th anniversary 50 anniversaries of this movement um of the of the of the college um but the synagogue that i serve in brattleboro is reform 
And the people that come are, they don't, they wouldn't label themselves. I think most people coming there, they don't think of themselves as reform or, or reconstructionist or, you know, it's because when you're in a rural place, like in Burlington, you can have a, a couple of different synagogues because it's a big enough city. But in Brattleboro, we just have the one. So it's for everyone. Okay. Um, I, I I wanted to ask, uh, you know, one of the things that, that made me want to, to discuss uh, this uh, terrible issue um, uh, with a rabbi is to to help um, the Vermonters as a, as a group as a whole to understand how how Jewish people feel about what has what has happened uh, in Israel and and this awful war with Hamas. Um, uh, what what do your what do your folks tell you? What what are, what are you getting from? Okay, them? well, you know, the idea the, there's a there's a saying that if you for every two Jews there are three opinions. <laughs> so that yep. is that is definitely the case. I mean, in in the community that I serve, there are people on all different opinions. I mean, so I cannot say like the Jewish community feels like this. I can say that we're, there's, I, I mean, I haven't polled people. Um, I think, I think that most people in the community feel similarly to the way that I feel, but you know, that's my perspective. So I, I but that's my sense is that, I mean, I am, have just been totally torn, totally torn uh, and I have, I'm not able to land on a posi- on a position that, you know, there, there are those who are like, you know, Israel right or wrong. And there are those who are, you know, ceasefire now, you know, may Palestine be free from the river to the sea. I mean, amongst the Jewish community, we have, there's a strong contingent of the Jewish voice for peace in the Brattleboro area, and some of the members of my community are members of, of that organization, which is proclaims itself as an anti-Zionist organization that, um, you know, which I think the term Zionism and anti-Zionism, there are multiple definitions for that, but basically uh, there are people in my community that are very vocal that feel that, uh, you know, there should Basically, that it sounds like what they're saying is we should go back to pre-1948, like that let 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 the Palestinians uh, have the whole 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 thing, and any Jew that wants to stay, you know, can take their chances. I mean, I I don't really understand what they think should happen to the Jews that live in Israel, which are, uh, you know, about seven million. Hmm. So, and then we have, but you know, that's that's a voice, and I actually have colleagues that are on the rabbinic council that I love and respect of that organization. And then there are some people in my community that are of the, you know, feeling that Hamas uh, is completely responsibility, completely responsible for all of the deaths in Gaza, because if they wouldn't have done what they did on October 7th, and if they wouldn't have this you know, tunnel system that all of the money that goes into Gaza, a huge amount of it goes straight into that. Everybody knows about it from the news, you know, that 
the the tunnels that are much vaster than we ever imagined um that you know the fuel and the food and the electricity everything goes down goes there um that we wouldn't have we wouldn't no 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 Palestinian civilian in Gaza would be dying if 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 Hamas hadn't created this yeah and uh so you have like the opposite you have like two opposite views and I'm really straddling not because of what the people in my community think because of just how I feel um and what you didn't mention in the intro to me is that um after my five years in Maine, I then returned to Israel and lived there for 12 and a half years. And I only left Israel a little over two years ago to return to New England, um, um, primarily for family reasons. But, you know, I'm also serving this community. And sure. so in my in my 13 years that I was recently in Israel, 12 and a half years, I would like to, if I can just share that. The whole time, literally from the moment I arrived, like two weeks later, I was at a two-week symposium with Palestinians, Israelis, and and also people from Ireland and Bosnia, uh, like uh, going around the West Bank, hearing from Palestinians in in Hebron, in in all of Ramallah. Like, I've been involved in, in peace and justice work for all those years. I've been at countless demonstrations against housing evictions. I've gone to plant olive trees that have been uprooted by settlers. I've gone to protect shepherds in the West Bank. I've, I've demonstrated, you know, I've, I, I was in a group, many groups actually, that brought Israelis and Palestinians together for to hear each other. Mm. And I, so I have, and I also worked as a physical therapist in nursing homes in Israel for 12 years where the the nurses aides always are at least half of them are Palestinian and the nurses are often Palestinian the pharmacists are always Palestinian and the doctor in the last nursing home I lived in I I worked in I felt like I lived there was Palestinian so and I lived in a neighborhood where Israelis and Pal- Jews and Palestinians were walking on the same path you know, in the same park, and it's, 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 uh, my life was very mixed with Palestinians, and, and I was working for justice. So I come from that, but, um, this, this attack on October 7th has really raised huge questions for me about, whether it's been naive. I mean, I'm very torn. I can just say I am confused and torn. Mm. I don't have any doubts about the the Palestinians that I personally know, and I still am calling people from the nursing homes that I worked with and people from the peace work that I did. I mean, I'm in touch with people, right? But understandably, they are absolutely horrified and furious at what Israel's doing in Gaza, Right. It's yeah. like it's it's hard. I mean, it's their people. Of and, course. Yeah. And and I'm also horrified. But at the same time, I haven't been able personally to come out and say, you know, it it, it can't be just like a unilateral ceasefire. Anyway, I'm going on and on. Maybe you want to ask me more questions. I could I could easily fill 
the half hour with my... <laughs> yeah. um, I wanted to ask you, since you care a great deal about Israel and its survival and all of the people there, um, and so do many in your congregation, um, has there been a, re- a conversation about what a better response to October 7th might have looked like? Um, we haven't had a conversation with that question. We've had, um, we, we had, okay, to answer that question, no, we haven't had a conversation about that. Although, as I said, there are people in the community, in my community that I think, I think they're a minority of people, but, you know, there are plenty of Jews that think this way that aren't in the community that, we never should have. I don't know if they think we shouldn't have responded at all. I'm not sure, but but uh, I, I'll tell you. I'm going to share my personal feeling about it. Okay. Which is because I really, I can only tell you, as I said in the beginning, that for every two Jews, there are three opinions. Right. And and so, but I think, I really think the majority of Jews are, or a lot of Jews are just like speechless, basically. Hmm. I mean, I think we just feel we don't even know what we can say. It's so, because it's obviously, you know, seeing the destruction in Gaza is upsetting to anyone with a heart. Sure. Right? And And, and um, at the same time, it's like the question, what, th- there needs to be a political solution to the whole Israel-Palestine conflict, which, you know, many, many brilliant minds have attempted to reach for, you know, for decades with, with to no avail. Um, and so it's really easy to say we need a political solution, but exactly, you know, what that's how that's going to happen. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I thought I'll tell you my personal feeling was after the first few days of utter shock, um, I felt like, okay, we Israel, and I say we because I am still an Israeli citizen, and I feel that we feeling, which some Jews feel and some do not. You know, um, it's. Um, I felt we should actually not have responded militarily. I'll say from the very beginning, because we had two hundred and thirty something hostages in Gaza, and I think what we should have done is not responded militarily and just said to the world, you know, help us get our hostages back. That is the number one priority. Get them back. And if I wonder whether if Israel had not responded militarily, if the world's sympathy would have helped us to bring the hostages home, which I know is the main thing in in the Israeli heart and mind. Like every place you go in Israel, I'm not there, but every place there are there are posters of the hostages and every Israeli knows the names and personal stories of all of the hostages. Mm. It's like everyone's living and breathing their their suffering. I just went just now before this, I went to a, a group of women rabbis in Israel that we meet every day to pray for like 15 minutes. And I just was there. Um and on Zoom, obviously. And um, I just think we should have focused on getting them back. And that's all. Okay. And 
but but now that we that once Israel started bombing, once the IDF started bombing, it it ironically I find you know it it's the more we discover of what's underground. I mean, if if there was a way to destroy the tunnel system without killing civilians, that would be ideal. You know, how can we? But also, how do you destroy that ideology, even if you destroy the tunnels? It's, it's, and, and the question is, is there any way that, you know, Hamas would ever agree that there should be, that there could be a Jewish state in Israel and a Palestinian state in Gaza and the West Bank? Yeah. And we've never, we've never been able to, to come to that. You know, and I just I want to just say a word about the genocide accusation, which is now, you know, being discussed in the international court. Sure. That. Like, maybe it doesn't matter what we call it. The fact is, you know, 24,000 people at least have been killed in Gaza and half a million are on the brink of starvation. So it's a, it's huge huge and i just i take issue with the genocide term because we have two million palestinians living as israeli citizens as i just said in jerusalem i worked with palestinians in many ways at work and in and in you know the, the justice work and nobody in israel is trying to kill them so yeah, it's a misnomer. I, I, I think I think it's wrong to 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 call it genocide. And it, the fact, you know, in terms of you know a, 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 an actual definition, it doesn't fit it. Um, I, I did want to move on though and ask you. Um, uh, Israel has offered has offered, uh, according to CNN, a two month ceasefire to work out a hostage deal. Um, Hamas is saying, you know. Um, we want a complete end uh, before any any hostage any more hostages are returned. Um, I, uh, um, I I just wanted to ask what your congregants are thinking about Prime Minister Netanyahu um, and and his leadership in this chapter of of of, of Israel. Um, is it oh, is it relatively I, I uniform it, against him or or yes yeah yes I would say there are very few I, I mean I know of I know of one member of my congregation that 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 supports Netanyahu I mean maybe there's two or three most people are very anti Netanyahu you know and I was demonstrating against him for years especially in this summer when I visited so nobody likes this government. Um, yeah, that's, that's one thing we mostly agree on. Um, okay. Um, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you, you alluded to it, uh, 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 the idea, uh, President Biden has, um, has tried to move forward, uh, this, this idea of a two-state solution, um, uh, Netanyahu seems to think that um, doing so would give terrorists the protection of of a sovereign state. Um, uh, it, it, I guess your folks understand that, your congregants understand that. Um, but um, would uh, do, do you get the idea that most of them would would be willing to give it a shot? I think most people in my congregation would want their, you know, a two-state solution. I mean, 
But I can also just tell you from my experience of the last, well, I, I think that any, any Israeli leader who would really go for that is, I, I think they're just afraid. I think that it takes incredible courage because, you know, Rabin was assassinated for that in 1995. And um, I think it was 95, <laughs> maybe it was 94, but it was, it was, I think it was 95. So I think it's, there's a great fear of the extreme right, you know, and it would take an extremely courageous leader to go against the extreme right, the settlement movement. And, you know, Netanyahu made a coalition now with, with extremists. Because because he's out for himself, he's out for his personal um, power and and to stay out of prison for various, uh, you know, there, there he has a bunch of court files and and he's just he's just uh, trying to stay out of prison, so he'll wants to stay in power, and and there's extremists in the government, and I will say there are extremists in this government that they do advocate either genocide, not genocide, but but. You know, they don't really care about human life in Gaza, and they would also um, would be happy for everyone to be transferred out. There are people who think like that in this government, and they have to, I hope, that the next government after this war will be a completely different one that is really willing to sit down. And I wish there was a way to attach U.S. aid to Israel to a solution. Yeah. Right, because I don't want aid to be cut off. Israel needs its defense system for sure. Right. It needs air. It needs defense. Right. But the question: How can you get them to spend their military budget on defense and not on offense? And where's the line? Yeah, um, we um, we we. Are, I'm, I'm sorry, Rabbi. Uh, we are just about out of time. Um, I do want to thank you so much for joining us and and expressing your thoughts about this. Uh, really terrible and, and vexing conflict. Uh, Rabbi Amita German of the Brattleboro Jewish Co- Community, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brad. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.